The views expressed on this show by guests and the host on issues outside of the 9-11 controlled demolition evidence are the opinions of those individuals alone and do not necessarily reflect those of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is 9-11 Freefall. I'm the host, Andy Steele, and today we are joined by Gene Johnson. Gene is a project due diligence volunteer. He has a BSME and 30-plus years experience as a construction and mining engineer designing and working with heavy machinery and open pit mining where explosives are used. He's a signatory to AE 9-11 Truth's petition calling for a new investigation into the destruction of the three towers that fell on September 11th, and he just gave another presentation on behalf of Project Due Diligence. We're getting a lot of them here lately, and we can't you know, feature all of them, but uh, we do tell you about it when we can. So let me go ahead and bring Gene in here. Where is he? There he is. Gene, welcome back to 9-11 Freefall. Glad to be back, Andy. Yeah, and it's the first time you're on video. It's almost like a reboot of the whole show since we've been doing this. So I'm going to start a little bit from square one, not too much, but it's enough to uh, get the audience familiar with you if they haven't listened to your previous audio interviews. Uh, tell us more about your engineering background and what you did in those decades of experience. Oh, well, with, with the construction and mining group, I had a responsibility both domestic and international. I actually lived for two years in Peru. Uh, some of the customers that I had down there were uh, Southern Peru Copper and Cerro de Pasco. Uh, a lot of it was underground. I was uh, several thousand feet underground when they had a, a earthquake on the surface in Peru. So that was kind of that was kind of an interesting thing because we were getting uh, information on the telephone that they were they were having a bad earthquake and down at 2,000 feet below below the surface we didn't even notice it but uh -huh. we were in uh, we were uh, boring tunnels drilling um, blasting uh, uh, drifts into the mining and then excavating the uh, the ore out that was my experience in Peru but then I had worldwide responsibility for some of the equipment the drilling equipment, um, it, it brought me into the area of failure analysis. Uh, a lot of it was education of uh, how to use the products and service the products. A lot of structural uh, weldments and heavy, heavy booms and uh, derricks in the uh, uh, some of the, the oil and gas drilling. So I, I guess uh, when I first saw the, the video of building seven, I was, of course, like everybody else, shocked because I realized what the story was couldn't have happened. Well, yeah, I wish I was that smart. I watched it come down and didn't think twice about it. It took years for me to wake up and years for so many other people. I guess for so many, it's like someone's got to point it out to you at first. 
it's like trying to see a new color that's not in the normal color spectrum. Impossible to do because you have no frame of reference. But once you see it come down, once you look into all the evidence and you see all of the holes uh, that are so prevalent in this official story, I mean, just like the Swiss cheese steel in Appendix C of the FEMA report, that is basically the essence of this story right there encapsulated in a picture. Uh, but basically, once you see all that, it's hard to look away. You know these buildings were brought down in controlled demolitions, Building 7, and of course the Twin Towers. And it's interesting talking about mining. You know, one of my favorite YouTube channels has these guys that go down into old mines that were, you know, have been long since closed down. I don't know if they're sneaking down there uh, illegally or not. But they go down there and they find all sorts of artifacts. They'll find cigarette packs from the 1950s and such. They'll even find stuff from like 100 years ago that people left behind. Very yeah. fascinating, very dangerous. You know, to that Yugoslavia. point, uh, I was in Bor, Yugoslavia, in an open pit copper mine. And they were, this is back when it was still Yugoslavia in the 70s. And they were breaking into drifts that mine tunnels that had been uh, opened up in the Middle Ages during the Copper Era. Uh, so they, this mine was, was actually back in the, uh, the Middle Ages. That is, you know, I love history so much and not just, you know, the, the stating of facts, toys, uh, you know, that you get out of your textbooks and this day happened on such and such a day. Don't care so much about that, but it's just the idea that people actually lived here on this planet so many years ago. And now with the internet, you know, at least as long as the internet stays active and not shut down, then, you know, people are sort of uh, memorialized or remembered through their Facebook pages and all that. But, you know, 500 years ago, people lived and died and nobody knew who they were. And to this day, all the people that knew them are gone, but, but there they were and they had day-to-day -day lives. That's even more interesting to me than the greats of history. You know, the people who conquered nations and did all these things. I'm more interested in them. You know, the peasants who were carrying potatoes from one town to the other and uh, just how they got through their days. So probably finding those artifacts gives you a big insight into, uh, you know, your ancestors and, and all of that. So uh, remind our audience just really quick, what PDD is all about? What's the mission of uh, Project Due Diligence? Well, uh, uh, not sure, Andy, what was that? What was the, the, the mission of Project Do, what you're doing, going out there to, uh, oh, giving those presentations? Well, the important thing that we're, we're uh, bringing to the, to the audience is the fact that, that uh, what the government, what NISC is saying, is not uh, structurally possible. The... Uh, the argument that 82 heavy-duty steel beams, which are columns in a 47-story building, can be, one beam can, can buckle and the whole uh, structure can become unstable and collapse is nonsense. What, what NISC is trying to say is that something office fires were able to heat beams strong enough to be able to push a girder off of its seat, exposing a long uh, section of a, of a column which became structurally unstable. When you know that you have uh, a video evidence of the collapse of the buildings 
showing that it collapses into symmetrically into its own footprint in seven seconds. So the, it's a dichotomy of, of what actually is visibly happening versus what we're being told we should believe. And the two don't, 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 uh, don't jive. Yeah, well, reality and NIST's explanation don't jive. I mean, by their logic, and people have said this for so many years, uh, you could just start some random office fires and watch an entire building come down. No need to study controlled demolitions. No need to get trained and get, uh, you know, get to get hired on to a company for, and uh, some experience for a while before you actually start planning these demolitions. No need for that. You just start a fire, watch the building come down. Thermal expansion, we have a new phenomenon that can bring buildings down according to NIST. Of course, it's ridiculous. AE-911 Truth has been at the forefront debunking NIST. You know, they always talk about debunking in the context of countering us, but in reality, we're the ones debunking them. And at this point, they, can, they can't even defend themselves. They just have to kind of put their nose up to the air and, uh, and pretend that we don't exist. And they'll say, we stand by our story. That's, that's it. That's the uh, that's their explanation at this point. Um, so tell them, okay. So basically, tell our audience everything about this latest presentation because we want everybody to see exactly what our engineers are doing. And it's unfortunate, so, you know, we can't publicize every single thing that happens. But when somebody goes out and gives one of these presentations, it's important for our audience to know that this occurred, that engineers are having this outreach done to them, and it's mainly to the grassroots. We're not going through the ASCE leadership here. We're going right down to the, uh, the groups that uh, engage the grassroots uh, and speaking directly to them. I mean, that's the key to everything. You gotta get around gatekeepers and, and such. Um, but start off telling us what branch it was, when this took place, uh, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, it was about three weeks ago, and it was the uh, Longview branch uh, of the ASCE, and uh, it's about uh, 125 miles east of Dallas. There's uh, 15 branches, ASC branches in Texas, and before COVID, uh, we presented at uh, Amarillo and Midland, so we've had three of the 15, we still have a few to go. But the meeting uh, in Longview was, was in a restaurant. It was a lunch meeting. There was a room set aside for, for conferences in this restaurant. Uh, there was a large uh, TV in the back against the wall. And I was able to plug my uh, laptop into the, uh, into the TV with HDMI cord. So it was, it was pretty, pretty convenient uh, setup. We had, uh, we had about 10, we had 10, uh, engineers that attended the uh, the except for one elderly man they were, they were all under 50 and some of them were probably even under 40 age group <laughs> so it was a young group they're really interested uh, the uh, the presentation took about 50 minutes I had some handouts I handed out uh, information on project due diligence uh, on the organization, which was uh, architects and engineers. Then I had uh, a handout which covered the timeline of what Project Due Diligence has been doing, which were the, were the highlights 
uh, ever all the way back to the beginning. And then finally, a survey uh, sheet that they could fill out for us. So the, uh, the group was uh, unaware of building seven. And I don't think they were aware of architects and engineers. So I, I started the uh, presentation with, a, with an introduction. Uh, what I started with was that a, any architects and engineers had been founded in 2006. Uh, it was founded by Richard Gage, an architect. And today, the, uh, the group have over 3,500 plus architects and engineers who have signed a petition demanding a new investigation, uh, demanding a new independent investigation in, in regard to the collapse of the two buildings, the three buildings, the Twin Towers and Building 7. And that NISC was given the responsibility, NISC, National Institute of Standards and Technology, was given the responsibility to determine the cause of failure for those three buildings. Uh, NISC published a 10,000 page report in 2005 on the Twin Towers and a thousand page report on Building 7 in 2008. And those two reports have never been properly peer reviewed. So what the engineers have done at A&E is to study those reports. And in that process, they have uncovered or discovered serious errors and omissions. And what they've done with that information is put it into a format, a slide format, and it's being presented to engineering societies all over the world. It's referred to as project due diligence. So that was my introduction. And as, as and I noted at that point that today in this meeting, we were going to be reviewing, peer reviewing the NIST report that was responsible and covered the collapse of Building 7. So I said I had a series of slides, and my first slide was going to be a, a video of the collapse of the building that had been put together by the A&E group. And it's a brilliant, brilliant presentation. And I want you to think and the audience to think about what, what your experience was when you first saw the collapse of the building, because there's going to be a group of people or engineers that are going to suddenly be exposed to something that's unimaginable, really, the collapse of this building. And the, the, uh, the video is really creative because it's a collage of eight different clips of the video collapsing taken from different perspectives. Uh, it doesn't last very long, but there's an audio that goes with it, which bring in five different people making comments people who actually were on the on the site at the time it was happening. So these are these are these are the people that are telling us what they're seeing when it's happening. 
So I, I took the uh, time to transcribe that information and I want, I want to go through it kind of in detail here. And I'm going to, going to quote the, uh, the comments that these people made and make some comments of my own as we go through it. The first, the first commentator was, or the first speaker on this uh, top of this, the audio in this uh, video of the collapsing of the buildings. Well, before I go there, I wanted to mention too that uh, I, I started to say it earlier, but think about what your impression was at the time that you saw that that collapse of that building. And now think what's going on in this meeting with these 10 engineers who are going to see that for the first time. So it, it's, it's uh, if you were like me when you saw it, you were amazed and, and it was incredulous. But here's what Dan Rather said. Dan Rather uh, was a mainstream media commentator at the time. He said, it was reminiscent of pictures we have all seen before on TV when a building was deliberately destroyed by well-placed dynamite. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. I don't know. While you're ending that here, and I'm gonna have you continue, but I just wanna make the point here, because you've got 10 engineers who've never heard of Building 7. Of course, you know, you have an event like this, even if you believe the official story, it seems like they should have should know something about it or have heard about it, but they don't. So that's why when the other side comes out and says, oh, you've only got 3,500 architects and engineers, it's so disingenuous for them to make that argument because it's not like the public is all that informed about this third building or about any of the real facts around September 11th other than, you know, the boogeymen hated our freedom. So, um, you know, because like we've done our job to try to get it out there, but we don't have the resources of CNN, MSNBC, Fox News or anything like that. So for what we are able to do and get people before these audiences and generally usually when you make these presentations, most people end up agreeing with us in the end. It's like, you know, it's like when, when somebody first invented penicillin. Now, you might have some people on the outskirts of of, uh, of these small farm towns and such, you know, who have never heard of it before. So it'd be like saying, oh, it doesn't work because these doctors don't agree with you. Well, if they've never heard of it before or looked into it, then of course, you know, that they, then they're not going to have an opinion at all. So it's just, it's so disingenuous when they make that argument and so easy to shoot down. Just wanted to get that in there. Please continue. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, okay. I, I, I want to go back to Dan Rather here. Mm -hmm. He said, to repeat a little bit, it was reminiscence of pictures we have all seen before on TV when a building was deliberately destroyed by well-placed dynamite to knock it down. Uh, now, the thing about that is this is the first day, and, and that's the only day that mainstream media covered the collapse of Building 7. It went dark after that. That's why nobody knows about it. But on that day, even the BBC reported it, but they reported that it collapsed 13 minutes before it collapsed. And they were actually sued by, by some local guy in, in England, and they lost the case for uh, false, false uh, news reporting. The, the point there is, is how would they, how would anybody know that a steel high-rise building was going to collapse with, because of fire, when no, none had ever happened before. 
Right. So the other thing about that is, is in regard to the mainstream media and its, and its reporting, the, the University of Alaska Fairbanks came out with this uh, four-year study, peer-reviewed report, showing that that fires could not have been the cause of failure, and the mainstream has completely ignored that. So there's uh, there's something wrong with that picture. So the next the next uh, comment in regard to the the, the the collapse, he says, I heard this sound like a clap of thunder. Looks like it was a shock wave ripping through the building and all the windows busted out. About a second later, the bottom floor caved out. Then the building followed after that and we saw the building collapse down all the way to the ground. Now this is somebody that was there that is describing what he saw. And that's the first, these are the best uh, ex explanations of what's probably gonna happen, most realistic before the, the, uh, the noise gets put into it all. But what he said is uh, it sounded like a clap of thunder. And NISC's uh, prime uh, inspector, or, or, or what's his name? Uh, uh, Cyan. Oh, Cheyenne uh, Sunder? Sunder. Cyan Sunder. He's the guy that was responsible, the NIST guy that was responsible for for handling the 9-11 uh, information. So another one is, uh, I turned to see what looked like a skyscraper implosion. It looked like it had been done by a demolition crew. The whole thing just fell down on itself. And here was another one. There are five of these, I'm on four. It was almost as if, as if it were a planned implosion. It just pancaked. Now here's one that, that we're gonna to have to build on here because it's, it's really important. Uh, it's a question. One, one person's asking another person a question. Did they actually use the word brought down and who was telling you this? And the answer, the fire department, and they did use the word, we have to bring it down. Now, that reminded me of a quote from Larry Silverstein when he said, we're going to pull it. And I'll get to the whole quote in a minute. But Larry, you know more about Larry Silverstein than I do. Maybe you can, can elaborate on who he is. Yeah, he was the owner of the of the uh, buildings that went down on that day. And I do know, I'm familiar with the quote that you're talking about. A lot of people have brought it up. Now, I'm not saying it's not valid because, I mean, it's something we got to pay attention to everything there. My, my thing is, is that, um, you know, there's so much evidence of controlled demolition on that day just from the physics and the buildings coming down that, um, you know, I look at that quote as very odd because he, he says, you know, the uh, terrible loss of life, smartest thing to do is just uh, pull it and we watch the building come down. Well, you know, it's kind of a strange, I mean, let's just give him as much uh, leeway as possible here for argument's sake. It's a strange way to say it, to pull it, because if you're talking about the firefighters, which he later claims, um, wouldn't you say pull them, you know? 
And now somebody on the other side will say, well, he misspoke and all this, and I, you get into the semantics. So that's why I don't talk about it very often, but it's very strange that uh, that he would use that terminology, and it's something that I definitely take note of. Um, so I hope I, I hope I didn't uh, jump the gun there on it, but, uh, but uh, please continue. Well, uh, I think uh, what we have to make clear is that he was the owner of the building. <laughs> right. And he, he had insurance on the collapse of those buildings, the Twin Towers, and he was uh, claiming two, uh, two claims on his insurance because there were two airplanes. And he actually took it to, to court and he wound up, the, end, the bottom line was he got $4.5 billion from insurance on those claiming. But here's the quote. I remember getting a call from the fire department commander now that goes back to that previous quote we were talking about, telling me that they were not sure that they were going to be able to contain the fire. And I said, we have had such terrible loss of life today. Maybe the smartest thing to do is to pull it. And they made that decision to pull. And we watched the building collapse. Now that's, that for me, that's a, uh, to pull it is a, is a demolition term. Uh, I, I was aware for years because I was exposed to the demolition uh, community. But to be able to under, to be able to say that we're going to pull a controlled demolition on a building in an afternoon is ridiculous. It's impossible to have an emergency controlled demolition because it's so complicated. There are so few organizations in the world that can do it, which would be a good way to start your investigation if you were gonna investigate this because uh, it's a limited uh, community that have this capability. What's it, and, and the University of Alaska's report explains how difficult that would be. What they did is they modeled the building and then they continued to go through different scenarios to get the building to collapse in a way that you observed it on the videos. And the only way that they could do that was to remove completely, it was through a global, global collapse rather than the progressive collapse that NIST wanted us to believe. But the global collapse requires that all of the columns be removed from eight floors for this building to collapse down. Now, if you're going to if you're going to if you're going to design a system, or if you're going to be the, the person responsible for designing the system to bring the building down, think about all the things that you'd have to know and do. So, it, there's 82 columns in the building. And this is 610 foot tall building, and these columns are massive. The actual column is an I-beam that weighs 730 pounds a foot. But the caveat is that some of those columns have been reinforced with two inch steel plate, 26 inch by two inch thick. And that adds another 350 pounds per, per foot. So now you have a column, some columns that weigh over a thousand pounds per foot. And sure wouldn't be able to put that in your pickup. You know, but think about it in terms of somebody that has to go in now 
first of all, you have to decide what explosives to use, and you have two variables. You've got a 700-pound column, you've got a 1,000-pound column, so you have to decide where they are, what kind of a explosive you want to use to bring them down. Do you have to put an explosive on the ceiling and the floor, or can you just put one down there? So now you've got thousands of these uh, explosive devices that have to be attached to these columns. And in the time, you have to, first of all, you got to design it, order it, buy it, deliver it, and then the people have to install it, and, and it has to work. The, you've all seen probably uh, uh, buildings that control, control demolition buildings that have not gone as planned. They've, they've twisted and turned and tipped over. So it, it has to be done by experts. And it can't be done in an afternoon. So that's, the, I guess, the point to, to talk about there. Uh, well, the let me just add, too, when it comes to building structures, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not an engineer, but I've never heard of an emergency controlled demolition. Because I've heard people propose this. And years ago, I was debating with somebody about 9-11, all points of it. Point, and he, you know, he would match me on every point. When it came to Building 7, he said, well, that's probably just something we don't need to know about. And you can't get away with that because... Uh, for the amount of work that it takes to bring that building down, you got you have to know ahead of time that something was going to happen, which brings up foreknowledge and all of those things. But, uh, you know, I've heard people propose this, that, oh, maybe, you know, to control the fire, you know, they just brought that down in a morning in an emergency. Well, why would bringing down the building uh, be a, a good option? Why not just fight the fire from the outside? Like the firefighters were on video doing. You know, I've never heard, it's like, it's like somebody, you know, gets their hand cut off in an accident and you decide, oh, I think the smart thing to do is just shoot them, you know, instead of just driving them to the hospital. It doesn't make any sense. It's people scrambling, trying to grab at any kind of explanation other than uh, the obvious one, which is controlled demolition and they knew it was going to happen. Uh, so anyway, well, you, please continue. Yeah, you, 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 let's talk about Nissa's argument as to what the cause of failure was. Because what they say uh, is that uh, debris from the collapse, first of all, the building seven is 350 feet to the north of the North Tower. So this argument is that it's a progressive failure. And I'll get to that in a minute. But the, the, the argument here is that uh, controlled demolition is a global failure. NIST is so anxious or uh, concerned about explosives that they want to make sure that the, they have an argument that, and they came up with this idea that, that fires caused the building to come down. I'll explain how that how they say that happened. Uh, but the, the fire that they say got started because of debris falling from building the North Tower set of fire office office material in the in the twelfth floor, in the northeast corner of Building Seven, and this fire raged for seven hours. Here's something that that was posted on their webpage: Had water supply for the automatic sprinkler system been available, it's likely that the fires in World Trade Center Seven would have been controlled and the collapse prevented. So that's from NIST. Now, there's another organization called the Firefighters for 9-11 Truth. 
that came out with a documentary two years ago, and what it is, I reckon, definitely recommend everybody that is interested to read to to watch that documentary because it's excellent. But what those firefighters are saying is, look, they, we had plenty of water, but they wouldn't let us go into the building because they said the building was going to collapse. And you can't get seven hours of fire from the office from, from the combustibles in an office because the combustibles are consumed in about 20 or 30 minutes. So, but anyway, if you, if you go with the argument that the fire raged for seven hours in the corner of the 12th floor, and that was hot enough to uh, heat. Uh, let me explain what the structure looks like. You've got you've got beams running horizontally into a girder that's running horizontally, and that girder attaches to a column, which is my thumb. So these beams get heated up to 600 degrees Celsius. The girder gets heated up to 500 degrees Celsius, and the column 300 degrees Celsius. But so so these beams, when they get heated up to 600 degrees. They expand, they get thermal expansion, they push, these beams get pushed against this girder. So NIST said that they pushed on this girder and the girder fell off this column. And when the floor, when the girder fell off, the whole floor dropped down and it collapsed the floor below that and five more floors, all the way down to the fifth floor, from the 12th floor to the fifth floor. And that exposed this column Un, it, had, it was un, it was not supported laterally at that point. It buckled, and then that progressed like dominoes across the whole building, which is the size of a football field now. And then eventually, the whole building came down. Now, if you look at the video, you see that didn't happen. What you see is the building coming symmetrically down into its own footprint in seven seconds. So that's a global failure. The progressive failure that this is saying happened could never accomplish what we see in the video, and that's that's the important thing. But the other the other, uh, I guess once you once you look at this at uh, a fifty thousand foot level, is why is NISC trying to promote something that that could not have happened? And the, the other thing too that I mentioned earlier about the. Uh, the thousand pound girder, thousand pound per foot, per foot column. They picked, <laughs> they picked column seventy nine, which happened to be the strongest column. So I guess if you're going to make a story, why would you pick the strongest column? So I think that was that was one of their screw ups. So, well, I think oh, I think the points I was trying to make there is that the firemen say that first of all. Fire could not have heated. Or, okay, there's a couple other things here. The fire could not have heated those beams going into the, the girder uh, to 600 degrees. Office fires could not have done that. But let's say they did. Now that's, the beam gets heated up to 600 degrees. Miss says it pushed five and a half inches. Um, against the skirt, the beam pushed five and a half inches against this girder and caused it to push off its seat. But in order for them to do that, the University of Alaska report says that this caused 
NISC used the outside wall as a fixed surface, which means that all of the expansion had to go toward the river. But in, our, in reality, that wouldn't happen. Half of our, some of the, some of the expansion in that beam would push against the outside wall. So you couldn't get the five and a half inches you needed to uh, push the girder off the seat. But then the other thing that this did is they said, well, I, we've only got an 11 inch seat. In fact, they had a 12 inch seat. Now the, the, the definition of when a girder is unsupported is Web of the girder moves past the edge of the seat. So they lied about the length of 11 inches, it's actually 12 inches. The other thing they lied about is that there are stiffeners on the web of the girder. The web of the, yes, the web of the girder has stiffeners to, uh, to allow it to pass, go past that edge of the seat. So they lied about the, uh, the, 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 the uh, outer wall being inflexible, the outer wall was flexible. They lied about the length of the seat. They, they said it was 11 inches, it was actually 12 inches. And they lied about the stiffeners. They, did not, they said that they did not, the girder did not have stiffeners, it did have stiffeners. And then even if you did say this thing dropped off, and it fell down to the floor below it, they said it would knock the floor below it loose, and that couldn't happen. So there's several things in the project. This is all part of the project due diligence uh, presentation, and I'm probably badly uh, uh, reporting it, but I guess the, the answer for you to get better information is <laughs> to go to the website and listen to the project due diligence. But I just want to say to the audience, though, this is the stuff that engineers need to be hearing throughout the country. And some of this gets to technical and a lot of jargon and stuff. But this is the kind of stuff engineers talk about when they're together. I mean, this should be actually being explained to Congress uh, at a congressional hearing, maybe someday. But this is why we all have to get behind this, because when Gene goes to presentations at ASCE branches, I imagine he gets questions uh, of this nature of everything that he's describing here. And, uh, and it gives a great opportunity for the engineering community to see that this is not a conspiracy theory on the internet, that this is not just some crazy people in their mother's basements talking about this stuff. This is real. The evidence is real. Despite all of the negative propaganda aimed at us, despite all of the people trying to tell you that uh, there is nothing to this, that there's no point in going on, that uh, it's all been debunked years ago. None of that matters. It's just smoke and mirrors on their side. When you actually boil it down, the evidence is real and we can defend it. And we have time and time again. It's not even a challenge in defending it. The real battle is just overcoming people's cognitive dissonance and uh, psychology and all of those things. So that's why we have to get behind AE 911 Truth and Project Due Diligence because everything that we do, even stuff that's uh, not related to Project Due Diligence is to back up people like Gene here to go out and make these arguments, help pay for uh, them to, you know, if they, if they need to fly or travel and all of this other stuff. 
So uh, please consider helping us out if you can. And if you are already, then God bless you. Uh, Gene, I just want to get a sense that I want you to continue with your presentation, but I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of one of the engineers there in the room. What was the vibe you were getting as you were talking about this? How did it, uh, did, did you get any challenging questions? <laughs> well, uh, the group, you know, I go back to the very beginning when, when we were talking about seeing the video for the first time, you know, everybody has a reaction to that. And I could tell the group was really, really uh, interested. Let's put it that way. Uh, yes, the very first question, when I, let's, let's go back uh, a little bit more to what, what happened before I go to the questions part, because if you remember once the building collapsed, the trucks were lined up the next day almost to haul away all the, the debris. Uh, that, that was a crime scene. That was illegal for them to do that. You know, if a plane crashes, they go pick up all the pieces and put it together. It's hard to find out why the plane crashed. That's what they should have done with Building 7 or all of them, all three of them. But they didn't. And that was illegal. They didn't follow the correct procedures. And you have to ask her, well, why did they do that? But one other thing, too, there was evidence of high temperature in the foundation of both the towers and Building 7. They did an aerial uh, a plane, uh, a USGS, or I think, well, I forget who did it. But they were able to determine that the temperatures in the foundation of those buildings was, was very, very high, much higher than it could ever have been due to office fires or even plane cars for that matter, uh, plane uh, fuel cars. So then, then there was very little material that was set aside for inspection, but they did have some, a couple pieces that were just totally, uh, they were heated up in a way that could not have normally happened, let's put it that way. So all of this happened. So, and the presentation, the PD, uh, project due diligence presentation to this group of engineers, I, I tried to bring all of that information to them. And, and I know it was kind of overwhelming. It is overwhelming to do all this in an hour. Uh, but back to your question, how did the, the group respond? I had, I had two questions. <laughs> the first question, when I opened up the Florida questions, came, came uh, from one of the engineers who said, let me think if I get it right now here. Okay, he said, we know they lied. Now what are we gonna do about it? And uh, of course, I, obviously the answer was to sign the petition and, and support what we're doing with, with architects and engineers. So yes, the, the, the group was really agitated. And the very next day, I got an email from the uh, uh, from the branch contact who thanked me again. Actually, when when I when the when the presentation was over, they they all clapped. They were all very interested. Some of them came up and talked to me. But the email said, "Thank you again for your presentation. Your presentation is is." Uh, stimulated a lot of interest in our group. So, yeah, I felt pretty good about that, but 
I, I, I think we, I impressed at least a couple of them. Yeah, well, and that's something maybe we should follow up. Uh, that's because it's the first time hearing this, folks. <laughs> this part of it. That is excellent. You know, and that's the thing. Oh, yeah, you only have 3,500 architects and engineers, and nobody agrees with you. The world doesn't agree with you. No, the world doesn't know about this because the corporate media has failed. The engineering profession as a whole and your professional organizations, like the leadership of the ASC, I'm not talking about the grassroots people. I'm talking about the leadership. You have failed. You have failed your constituents. You have failed the people of America. But when the engineers actually watch this, overwhelming most of the time, an overwhelming most of the time, I'm actually being cautious in, in saying that, but no, I mean, basically I say pretty much all the time, they are uh, awakened. They agree with us. They want to, in this case, they're fired up. So what would happen if, the, if Gene was on TV talking about this? If he was on Good Morning American or America or, or Roland Angle, what do you think would happen across the country? Of course the mainstream media is going to suppress all of this. Good God, they, would, they wouldn't know what to do with themselves. We'd have to wake up to the fact that they've been failing us for all this time. They'd have to find new jobs. That's what that's what would happen if uh, if this was actually presented to all the people out there in the engineering community as a whole. That's why they have to try to suppress this everywhere that they can. Um, and it is frustrating. I mean, I get frustrated too. We all do. And some you know sometimes we'll get a presentation and then somebody behind the scenes steps in and gets it canceled. Or they'll say things like it's against our values, what, you know, scientific inquiry. But when we get them through, and we're getting a lot of them now because we got a dedicated team of volunteers out there calling uh, these people as part of their part of their daily routine here. <clears throat> um, you know, when we get them, we have success stories just like this. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, when I say that, I'm talking about the ASC leadership and some of the trouble we're having trying to get some kind of recognition of this or some kind of action on this. I mean, uh, and, and previous, either it was a news update or a free fall, I can't remember because it all pretty much looks the same. Um, but it was uh, trying to get this uh, paper published in their journal and all of the trouble that they're having and, and just getting it recognized and treated like a normal paper. Uh, what's your thoughts on this, Gene? All of the difficulty we run, we run into on the national level. Well, yes, that, that gets back to, back to the mainstream media uh, not reporting. Uh, that, that, that staggers your mind. Why are news people aren't jumping on the fact that the University of Alaska released a four-year study, a peer-reviewed report, say, stating unequivocally that fire could not have caused the collapse of building seven and it it, it was at the in fairbanks the local news reported on it but that was the first day that it came out but mainstream media after that it completely ignored it now why is that why 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 wouldn't they be ready to jump on that because here was, here was a case where 3,000 people were murdered. Hundreds of first responders died with chronic, chronic illnesses afterward. Wars were, were created. Millions of people died in those wars. And all because the premise was, was wrong. I mean, 
fires didn't bring the building seven down. Probably didn't bring, well, there was also another due diligence report presentation. The, the engineers went through the 10,000 page report on the Twin Towers and found other egregious uh, uh, errors and omissions in that report. So uh, that was actually one of the things that I told the branch, the uh, Longview branch, is that I could come back and give you this other report on the Twin Towers that the uh, due, due diligence team had put together. But the uh, the idea that the mainstream media would not report on the on the Alaska uh, study that con confirmed that fire could not bring it down, and the only possible way that the building could have collapsed the way it did collapse was through controlled demolition. Now and. and just think about what I was said earlier, how difficult it would be to, to create, to set up a, a building with the explosives necessary to make that happen. You know, it, uh, it's so complicated. You'd have, to, you'd have to know exactly where to put the explosives, how many to, to put there, how to time them, because in the uh, Alaska report, they said, if you, if you go back to how the building is made, you got an inner core of 24 columns and you got a perimeter core of, of 58 columns, total of 82. So not only did those columns have to fail on the inner core, it had to wait 1.3 seconds before the explosives would, would uh, drop down, the break loose on the outer core. So it's, it's just a precision thing. And then how would you take the time to have people go in and, and plant these explosives or however they did it? You know, and why wasn't, why wasn't security of the building preventing that from happening? Because like I said, you'd have 82 columns on each floor and you might have to plant two explosives on every column and you'd have to know which columns were the heavy columns and which columns were the light columns. Uh, and they'd have to do that for eight floors. And you'd have to know that it couldn't be above the 16th floor. Because that was the other thing that the University of Alaska report pointed out is that the way these things work is you've got you to remove all of the columns at the lower floors so the weight of the building comes falls down and crushes everything after that, if you put all your explosives on the top eight floors, you just blow the top of the building off. <laughs> so that wouldn't that wouldn't be the objective. <laughs> well, I have this dream here, and you know, to succeed in anything, you first have to visualize it, right? And uh, I have this dream that someday we get it acknowledged what really happened, that uh, the government admits it was a controlled demolition. We have hearings, all of that stuff. I get to say. Nice knowing you, and uh, disappear from the public view, and uh, just you know spend my time uh, basically watching those hearings and reading books. And I mean, maybe I would do one more thing. Maybe do a documentary on the actual people who did this and how they were able to do it after all of that came to light. Because that would be fascinating to me to hear that story about how they got together, planned this, 
went in there, the specifics of how they laid it out. I'm sure the uh, the 3,500 architects and engineers we represent would be interested in that as well, but it would be a great day. Um, and the story would continue because there'd be so much else to learn. We can just tell you what did happen and what didn't happen. Okay, we'll start with what didn't happen. It was not a progressive collapse. Uh, what did happen was controlled demolition. The science proves that. But I would love to hear that story uh, from the people if they're still alive and, and whatnot when this comes forward. So, you know, I, I talked a little bit about how project due diligence or why it's so important because we're going at the grassroots. And again, you don't always see the progress on something on the outside until something big really happens. It's like, you know, uh, well, you're an engineer. If you don't see the cracks in your foundation, you might you know, pay attention to it until something, some horrible result happens, <laughs> you know, something falls down. So um, we're, we're doing that right now. And uh, we're continuing to send these people out. It's like an ongoing factory process that we have uh, these people doing this outreach or volunteers uh, getting these presentations for them. So it's important to keep on beating the drum because, you know, I'm not going to comment on outside issues, but you can see what's going on in the outside world. And it's like the country's tearing itself apart right now on both sides. Uh, and I really think in the end, we need to be still standing. And then after that, we'll be able to just step forward and hand the, hand the Bobby McElvain Act to Congress and say, uh, add this on to the other stuff <laughs> that's uh, being reformed right now. I think that at some point they're gonna realize that uh, a lot of reforms are gonna need to be made and we can add that on top of it. So we have to still stand and we still have to keep on doing what we are doing. And I know that they're threatened by AE 911 Truth because you know we're obviously not the mainstream media telling you NIST's narrative. And we're also not out there saying that everything in the world is a conspiracy and you know discrediting ourselves. We're basically sticking to the science and we keep on beating on the same drum. And you know, it sounds like it's boring and everything, but it's actually a huge threat to the system. They don't like that we exist. They, we like, they don't like that we don't take the bait on everything that comes around here to cause more divisiveness and and problems and distractions. So that's why uh, you know we're constantly uh, under attack here, but that's why our work is so important, why we're gonna keep on doing it and keep on doing it the same way because I have no doubt in the end we're gonna win. So those are my thoughts. That's me blustering on about, about why I think it's so important. I wanna hear from Eugene. Why is it important that we keep on uh, with PDD and why our supporters should continue to support it? Simply put, 3,000 people were murdered. Thousands, millions of people died in wars. You know, I, I, can't, I can't put that aside. I mean, that's just, uh, just the way I am. And, I, and I, I can see that's the way you are. And this whole group of uh, architects and engineers just won't let that, uh, that that's a, a wrong that's got to be righted. So I, I, that's all I can say about that. But I'd like to mention one other thing. I mentioned it earlier about the firefighters for 911 Truth. Uh, you need to go there and watch their documentary. It's called Calling Out Bravo 7. Now there's a whole group of people like I, they, they're included in that, uh, that list of people that died because of uh, chronic illnesses after breathing all of that uh, contaminated air. Uh, they, they came to the same conclusion that fire could not have brought down seven and that they were told not to go into the building because the building was going to collapse. 
was being brought down. It was being pulled. That that could never, nobody should have known that that building was going to come down like that. No building has ever been brought down because of office fires. And the fact that it did come down means that the, then the, the explosives were in the building when it came down. It had been planted in the building ahead of time. You cannot have an emergency controlled demolition. It takes weeks and months of planning and the time to install it just to buy the material to put it in there. You know how hard it is to get, the, to get material. And the fact that, that, there, that it came down so beautifully means that the people that brought it down knew what they were doing. It didn't just come down and fall over. It came straight down in seven seconds. Some of that was at a free fall, 2.3 seconds it fell in free fall mode, which means that there was absolutely no resistance stopping it for 100, 100 feet. That's the eight stories, that eight floors that the University of Alaska came up with because they had to do that same thing in their models to get it to look like the uh, video. And uh, I don't know, I just, the, I really am proud of the architects and engineers for being persistent and, and taking up this, uh, this cause because it's a terrible thing that happened. It is. Now, I saw Calling Out Bravo 7, great film. Uh, a lot of good information in that, so I recommend everybody watch that too. I'm not sure was it the firefighters for 9/11 Truth and Mater, or was it another group? I, I'm not. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> firefighters for 9/11 Truth, and their right. uh, their their uh, web page is ff911truth.org. Okay. So, well, everybody can check it out. You should be able to find it. I think on YouTube. I don't know. YouTube is. Uh, is censoring a lot lately, but you can go to dogpile.com and find a lot of the stuff if you know the title of it. So it's calling out Bravo 7. It, it's been around a while, but if you haven't checked it out yet, it's check been it out. Two years. To watch. two years. Yeah, so you can watch it this weekend if you haven't heard of it or seen it yet. A lot of good information in there. Uh, Gene, thank you so much for being available to do these presentations, to come on Freefall and talk about it for all the information you're bringing to the table and just for being you and doing what you do. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, you know, I, I, I always feel like I could take, do a better job explaining this and it, it never seems to come out right. Welcome to my world. <laughs> so, thanks again. And uh, folks, yeah, we'll just uh, take Gene out there. And uh, thank you again for watching 9-11 Freefall. Remember, if there's anything I can be doing better here on the show, let me know. Or if you want to say some nice things, too, you can always do that. Go to ae911truth.org or 911freefall.com. But for my part, this is Andy Steele saying I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.